Welcome, once again, <laughs> to Steadfast. Um, good to have you here. We're, we're jumping right back into chapter 14. Uh, just a couple chapters left after this. I was going to try and slow things down and maybe hit chapter 15 by Easter, but I don't think I'm going to make it. I think we'll, we'll have to talk about the resurrection before Easter, which is fine. We can do that. You can, in fact, we can celebrate the resurrection every day, but especially every Lord's Day. Um, and just a side note on that, uh, I've already been thinking about what's next. My heart's desire is really to go into 2 Corinthians, uh, and so we'll be jumping into that after uh, 1 Corinthians um, it's a book that I've never taught through before and, and really looking forward to that for my own study. And as I've been uh, doing some reading beforehand, I'm, I, I, I've been sticking with the New American Standard because I've used it for uh, a decade or so, um, maybe more, two decades, uh, while preaching. But I'm going to switch to the LSB um, when we go to 2 Corinthians. So I won't switch mid-book, but when we go to 2 Corinthians. I mention that because some of you may want a new Bible for Christmas, and uh, uh, in the new year, we'll probably uh, jump in when we get to Second Corinthians, I don't know, some, sometime before the summer, hopefully, uh, we'll start that study. Well, uh, let's, just, let's just go ahead and read our passage. The title this morning is Mindless Worship versus Mindful Worship from verses 20 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says this, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So the tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Let's pray. Father, as we read these last verses about worship that is displayed there, and we want it to be evident to all that God is here among us. So work in our own hearts and minds that we might fall before you, that we might have worship that is pleasing to you, that is mindful of you, and uh, that others would know of that, that we would be able to declare it to this world who desperately needs to see that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at Corinthians, we're reminded that the church in Corinth had all kinds of problems. Idol worship was a problem. Uh, There was immorality, which was often associated with idolatry. Paul has dealt with this throughout the book. And um, now he, he has a section here in the middle of chapter 14 really on worship, and it's tied in with his whole discourse on tongues and prophecy, which we've been talking about. Um, but uh, I would like to think about worship, which he refers to here, and actually take a, a look back at Genesis chapter 10, because I think that it, it's helpful for us to think about um, the first organized false religion, and that was at Babel. 
Um, actually, let's go for uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. Um, I'm going to read verses um, well, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. I just want uh, to, that, that's, a, that's a, an important Part of the story. If you look back to verse nine, chapter nine of Genesis, um, it says in nine verse one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." So part of that command was to go out through the earth and be scattered. And here they want to stay together and build a tower and elevate themselves and make a name for themselves. So they are, they're demonstrating a, a, a worship in a way that God does not want to be worshipped. Verse 6 of Genesis 11, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. In other words, anything they want to do, they're just going to do it. Verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So we have this this idea here, not that there was a... Everyone prior to Babel had a right view of God. There were those who didn't. There were those who sinned, um, obviously. But the first organized pagan religion began with the descendants of Noah. The genealogy is given to us in chapter 10 of Genesis, where we have uh, Noah and Ham and his son Cush, and then Noah's great-grandson Nimrod, who was a hunter and who was the founder of Babylon and uh, and who led this rebellion. Um, There was a major problem, and that is that it just wasn't the way God wanted to be worshipped. And so he disciplined these descendants of Noah by by confusing their languages, um, their speech. The, The word Babel is from a Hebrew word that actually means confusion, and so that's what his name... Also the root for the, the word Babylon, which is spoken of throughout Scripture... Um, but uh, Babylon or Babel, in fact, in Revelation 17, 5, let me read this for you. Uh, it calls Babylon the mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth because Babylon gave birth, that is the Tower of Babel gave birth, the mother of all harlots, to all false religion. There was something about the Tower of Babel and the way they worshiped that is related to all other false religion. In fact, in Revelation 14, verse 8, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so we have this idea of pagan religions since Babel, the mother of all pagan religions, and influenced 
by immorality, influenced by an idea of self-worship or self-works, self-gain, self-promotion. In fact, if you start to read uh, extra-biblical legends about other religions, you'll find that many of them trace their foundings back to... um, Uh, Some of them are mythical characters. We don't have records of them in Scripture, but uh, Nimrod's wife, apparently, Semiramis, uh, was a a goddess who was worshipped by many different names. In Syria, they worshipped her as Ishtar, who was a goddess of fertility who came down from heaven in an egg. We get the word Easter from Ishtar, which is still okay to, I think, uh, celebrate the resurrection. Um, But... um, in, in Phoenicia, her name was Astarte. In Greece, her name is Aphrodite. In Rome, she was called Venus. So every false religion really kind of relates back, has similarities to the mother of all false religion, Babel, Babylon. And another characteristic of many false religions was ecstatic experience. This idea of whipping yourself in a frenzy, becoming mindless, and trying to worship the deity for the experience without thinking about it. One commentator writes this about pagan ecstatic worship. Ecstasy, he says, was held to be supernatural sensuous communion with a deity. Through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies, worshipers experienced semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with God or a goddess. And so we certainly see that in Corinth, uh, they were using pagan, they were taking things from pagan religions and implementing them into their Christian worship, trying to be synchronistic in a sense. We've talked about this some with the practice of tongues Um, and uh, Paul comes to the idea of where are your minds now? You're imitating pagan religions, but what's going on with your minds? And I want to stop there and bring up a question and have the opportunity for you guys to uh, interact here, and that is um, someone came up to me last week after our message and asked a question, which is, you know, not uncommon. In fact, the best questions get asked after we've already broken up. And I've said, are there any questions? Everybody says, no. And then somebody goes, I have a question. So the question they asked was, uh, hey, wh- wh- I'm, what we're learning here about tongues and prophecy, how is the best way? How do I approach people that I know who believe that tongues are for today? What kind of conversations should I have with them? And how should I approach them? So what are your answers? We've talked about this, some of this before. What, what are some of the answers to that? You can just raise your hand and then give me the answer because it makes my job easier. Yes, Stephen. With patience. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, we've just had a whole chapter on love, right? Love is patient, yeah, and kind. <laughs> Fifteen possibilities for you here. So, uh, yeah. uh, but it's true. It's true. So, kindness, patience. I mean, if we're not, not going to speak the truth in love... Uh, why speak it? So, absolutely, yes. Sure, ask questions. Hey, why do you do that? What, what do you, you know, uh, who told you that? Where is that in the Bible? What, where do you get your grounding for that? Um, I, I think a good question to ask is, um, well, first of all, 
I think it's very important that we make a distinction between what we have referred to before as right-thinking charismatics and wrong-thinking charismatics. Those who believe that the charisma, the gifts, are for today, the grace gifts, those who believe that, uh, known widely as charismatics, Pentecostals, um, uh, in those circles, those who believe that tongues are for today and that they are actually practicing tongues, um, which I'm not convinced that they are practicing tongues because they're speaking a an ecstatic speech, rather, a gibberish, not a known language. And we've seen from our walking through the book of Acts and through Corinthians that tongues was a known language that sometimes was abused with some sort of gibberish, evidently, through 1 Corinthians. But when we come to this idea of um, who we're talking about here, I think it's important to make a distinction between what you might call right-thinking charismatics and wrong-thinking charismatics. And the dividing line between the two of them is that wrong-thinking charismatics believe in a different gospel. There is a health and wealth and prosperity gospel that is out there that is a different gospel than the gospel of the Bible. It's a gospel that damns, that does not save because it doesn't trust in Christ uh, for salvation. It it rather looks for uh, wealth and prosperity today, and it is a religion of greed. And there are those who twist the scripture in numerous ways to make it about now And they are, uh, some of them may be sincere, but they are sincerely wrong about the gospel. And so when the gospel is violated, it is a fundamental flaw and it is a false religion. So so the the, the wrong-thinking charismatics believe and trust in a different gospel, not the gospel of the Bible, and therefore they are not genuine believers. And there are abuses that are so horrific, you've heard about them, you've seen them, but there are, there's a large group of people that, that I would say believe in the gospel of the Bible, and, and yet they also believe that gifts are for today, and they believe that what are tongues, uh, they're practicing tongues, and that that's here in the scripture. And uh, the reason why I think it's important to make that distinction is because it's helpful to point out to them that many who are right-thinking charismatics do not speak out against the wrong-thinking charismatics. And that's why it's difficult for us to deal with them as a group, because there is an association with both groups together that doesn't be defined. So that's one thought. But another question would be good is to ask them this question, and that is, if you found that you had an experience that was different from what Scripture teaches, which would you trust more? If you had a personal experience that seemed to be different from what uh, Scripture teaches, believe. Would you believe your experience and take that at a higher value than what Scripture teaches? And I think that's a good question because a lot of times people have an experience and they don't have an explanation for it, and someone takes them to Scripture and takes a verse out of context and says, oh, you see, this is what just happened to you. And they say, oh, okay, and now they're looking at Scripture through the lens of their experience. Now, to a certain degree, we all look at Scripture through the lens of experience because reading Scripture is an experience in and of itself. But we must, if we come to a conclusion that the passage is actually describing something different from what we experienced, then we must somehow try to explain our experience by something other than that this is Scripture. If you're, if you're actually looking at your experiences primarily through the lens of Scripture. Um, so any questions on that? Yes. So what's your answer is, um, I would trust the Bible as opposed to 
So if they say Bible, that's great, because then, then your next question is, well, would you like to study the scriptures with me? Because, uh, listen, 1 Corinthians 14 is a difficult passage for everybody. We're really trying to, I mean, Paul is, is, has, makes some, some very um, difficult statements here. And, and you really, you come, down to, um, you come down to two views, essentially. One view is that the tongues he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 are different than the tongues from Acts. And that the tongues in Acts were known languages, but people say that you know, 1 Corinthians 14 is a secret prayer language and that it's an ecstatic speech and this, this is different. That's one viewpoint, and that's a popular viewpoint, especially among charismatics. The, another viewpoint is that uh, about, uh, the same gift of tongues as in the book of Acts, but he's talking about them um, and the abuse of them, and he intermingles his counsel talking about the true gift and the abuse of it, and that's how it makes the most sense to me. One of the questions I think that is a good question to ask somebody who believes that these gifts are different is, that, is, is say, well, why is it that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul about five years before Luke wrote the book of Acts? It seems like if Luke was writing the book of Acts and he was describing tongues, that he would not use the same language and describe the same gift. He would make some sort of distinction or something like that. So I think that that's one thing that could be brought up. But there are a number of, of things with, with the questions that come up as we look through the text. And today's is one of them. Because this idea that you should be whipped up in a frenzy, release your mind, that it's not important what you say, that self-edification is okay, which we've already talked about, right? I mean, the idea that you could build yourself up is not such a bad idea. We read scripture and we build ourselves up during quiet times alone. But the idea that I would do that in front of people and do something that nobody else could understand so that I might be built up in corporate worship, that, that's just selfishness. And that goes against, again, love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, um, but uh, uh, we have a lot of people who say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says. What matters is my experience. I have to trust my experience first. And that's dangerous. Let me read you something. A charismatic Baptist named Howard Irvin wrote this. Quote, understanding, uh, understanding of spiritual truth is predicated on spiritual experience. The Holy Spirit does not reveal spiritual secrets to the uncommitted. And quite frankly, the Pentecostal experience is one of total commitment. So in other words, you're not going to hear secrets from God unless you're totally committed to believe that you're going to hear secrets and things and your experience is there. Um, uh, 1999 a book uh, by J. Rodman Williams called Renewal Theology says, quote, any vital information concerning the gifts of the Spirit presupposes a participation in them. Without such a participation, whatever is said about the gifts may only result in confusion and errors. So you're only going to understand the Bible. That's a little dangerous because, I mean, how far are you going to take that, right? I don't have to murder to understand murder. Um, I don't have to commit acts of immorality, but there's some, there are some things, there are some certain things that have passed away that you cannot experience. I can't create or the world can't be created. Anyways, I think it, 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 the statement has a number of limitations. Um, Kenneth Hagin, false teacher who explains in his book, Learning to Flow with the Spirit of God, uh, he says, when God moves everybody, when God moves, everybody will be blessed. 
if something is of the flesh, everybody will have a sick feeling. And if something is of the devil, it seems like the hair will stand up on your neck. That is a simple way everyone can judge when they've got discernment, with spiritual discernment or not. So spiritual discernment is, is, is determined whether you have a sick feeling in your stomach or whether the potato salad was off before the evening service uh, or whether the hair on the back of your neck goes up. So what happens if I read that and the hair on the back of my neck goes up? Um, anyways, um, but... <laughs> so what do I value as the test of it be personal experience or is it going to be God's word? You can't separate them completely. I'm not saying that experience is bad. Worship is an experience. But we, we worship according to God's word. Otherwise, we go back to the mother of all false religions. And we start to make up with our own experience how we think God wants to be worshipped. So um, let's skip down and, and, and let's jump right into our passage. And I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to look at verses uh, 20 through 25 here, where Paul confronts the Corinthian church with two warnings that were intended to help them grow to spiritual maturity. And the first warning is this, that mindless worship results in spiritual immaturity. Verse 20a, uh, mindless worship results in spiritual immaturity. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet yet in evil be infants. So I love the fact that Paul begins this section with the word brethren. Notice also he ends this section down in verse 25 with the word brethren. I love the fact this is a, this is a term that it was used to speak both of men and women in the church as brothers and sisters. He's saying family members, beloved, my brethren, my, the, the, my family. He's, he's, he, so what is he doing here? He's writing to people who are abusing all kinds of things in the church. This is a church that in 1 Corinthians 5 was rejoicing over incest. And it's, you know, he says some pretty harsh things. And the book as a whole, he's basically saying, hey, you can't resist and then cover it over with tongues and think you're worshiping God, that somehow that's pleasing to him. He confronts them on a number of difficult uh, issues, and, but he calls them brethren. And I think that with what he's about to say, I think it's really important. And this goes back to what we're talking about when you're speaking to these right-thinking, gospel-believing believers who believe differently about the gifts than you believe, you do it as brothers, as sisters, as children of the same father. Um, So he um, he says to them, do not be children in your thinking, which is which is a, it's kind of a harsh way to say it. Don't be babies. Don't be children. Being childlike in things. He's taught in Matthew 18, we should be childlike in our humility. Um, and in, in verse 20, he says that we should be children when it comes to purity or when it comes to participating in evil, we should be babes. This idea that somehow, somehow it's advantageous for you to experience immorality is totally false. You should be totally inexperienced in immorality. You should be like a baby when it comes to that. You should have no idea. So the, the further you can stay away from immorality and evil, evil behave better. So 
Paul just says, hey, when it comes to issues of immorality, the more like a baby you are, the better. But don't be like a baby or a child in your thinking. Which leads us to the second here, verses 20b through 25, and that is mindful worship results in spiritual intimacy. So mindless worship results in spiritual immaturity, but mindful worship results in spiritual intimacy, a closeness. And we see in this section, verses 20b through 25, really three elements of mindful worship, three descriptions of what mindful worship, the three ingredients here. The first one is that mindful worship listens. You see verse 20, uh, it says, the second part here, but in your thinking be mature, verse 21, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is important for us to understand this verse because the rest of the passage is very difficult to understand if you don't understand this verse. I mean, this is not an easy passage. I mean, you're looking at this and he's saying here that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> verse 22, tongues are a sign for those who believe, or not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. And then in... Uh, Verse 23, he says, if the whole church assembles together and speaks in tongues and the ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Um, And then, yeah, you've got unbelievers and believers. And what is he saying? And first of all, what's going on with verse 20? Um, And and, and so we, we should turn back here to Isaiah 28. This is where he's quoting from. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. Otherwise, I will read portions of Isaiah 28. But we've seen that God's purpose in giving spiritual gifts to others was so that Christians um, would use those gifts to build up others, to edify others. We've also seen that um, self-edification was just selfish in corporate worship. And now he, he starts to explain some of the purpose of tongues. Why, do, why were tongues given in the first place? We know some of those reasons. We talked about in the book of Acts that it was confirming to the Jews that they saw it first given to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then later to the Samaritans and then later up there with in, in Acts chapter 9 with um, uh, the Gentiles and then later in Acts we have the believers who were Old Testament saints, followers of John the Baptist, who those were the only four groups we have in the book of Acts. We've seen that it was confirming that the Jews would be comforted by the fact that we should worship with, that Peter's right, we should, that nobody's unclean, that we should worship with Gentiles. It would have been a huge step for the Jews, but because they have the same spirit and the same gifts evidenced visibly, I think that was important for them. But tongues, says Paul, was given... Um, as a thing. And so uh, he says, it is written by men of strange tongues and the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a paraphrase of verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 28. Isaiah verses 9 and 10 says, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message just those weaned from milk? Let me just back up here a little bit. Isaiah's writing, he's writing to uh, Judah, to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been taken. Uh, if you, if, there are only two dates in the Old Testament that, that really, uh, if you have these two dates, there are more than two dates in the Old Testament, but if, if you have two dates, these two dates pegged in your mind, it's really going to help you. One of them is 722 and the other is 
586. Good, I'm hearing it. And so uh, that's because what happened, the story of the kings of the Old Testament, you know, David after David, Solomon uh, took over. Solomon, the kingdom divided. It was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was overcome and eventually taken over by um, Assyria to the north, and they carried them to the capital. The northern kingdom was was taken into captivity. The southern kingdom was 586 by Babylon. And so when you think about any prophet and you're starting to read Old Testament prophets, it's important to know what year were they prophesying because that'll tell you a lot about who they were speaking to. Well, Isaiah wrote his book in about 707 B.C. So when we were working backwards in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament era, and so it's after 722, so it's after the... um, uh, the, dis- the destruction of Samaria and after the Assyrians had come in. And the Assyrians were still a major force. And now he's saying to the, uh, he keeps on saying to the southern kingdom, hey, you need to repent or this is going to happen to you. You need to repent and it's going to happen to you. And that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 28. And they responded to him, do you think we're babies? I mean, just keep around the simple, simple things. Do you verse 9 that we are just those weaned from milk, those who've just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order and order on order, line on line and a little here, and a little there. Isaiah, you just keep on saying the same little things over and over again. It's very simplistic. You know, do you think that we're just kids? You know, we know what we're doing. So Isaiah responds to verse 12 of Isaiah 28, and he says, Indeed, he will speak to this people through the stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said, Here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. Isaiah's message to them is, okay, you want something more complex? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to have people speaking to you in different languages that you don't even understand, and that'll be a sign to you that you're being judged. And that was fulfilled both temporally, immediately, or shortly after that, and it was filled in the future too, fulfilled in the future. It was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah, because Assyria actually did come through and just decimate the land of Judah, even though Jerusalem, the capital, wasn't taken until 586 and three successive waves of, of, of exports there from Babylon, Assyria did just conquer many towns all the way from the border of, of the southern kingdom in the north all the way down to Egypt. And so uh, Judah, that southern kingdom, was really ravished by people of foreign tongues, by Assyrians, at the same time, the Babylonians, the Babel, 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 Babylonians, now they're, they're, they're hearing people in different languages telling them what to do. It was a warning in Isaiah. Paul, come back to our passage in 1 Corinthians, in the laws written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a warning. This is a warning that... Paul brings about and says, don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because if you keep on saying Jesus is not the Messiah, when it's clear that he is, these tongues that you hear, this sign gift of tongues, which on the day of Pentecost was what? That the Jews were able to hear the gospel, the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own tongues, in their own languages. 15 different nations listed in Acts chapter 2, hearing the wonders of God being declared. And so he says, says to them, if, uh, that's a warning to you. This is judgment to you. Something bad is going to happen. And you need to listen. 
it's not insignificant that in AD 7, the, the Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple and the Jews were scattered. And it was another big event that happened to the Jews who were not believing the coming of the Messiah. So he, he comes in and he's, he's telling them that you need to listen in verse 21. Another element of worship that will promote intimacy with God is that you need to understand verses 22, verse 22, the second element of mindful worship here. First of all, that mindful worship listens. It also understands. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. This starts to make sense when you understand verse 21. Um, there are those who still look at 1 Corinthians and say, no, tongues are for self-edification. But it's clear that they're not. And it's clear not only from, the, from what Paul says in the first part of chapter 14, verses 1 through 19, but in this verse here, the purpose of tongues is a sign. You need to understand it's a sign pointing towards it was pointing towards that if the unbelievers, the unbelieving Jews didn't repent and follow Christ, God would bring about a destructive, devastating event. Ultimately, ending if unbelievers end up apart from God, separated from God, spending eternity in hell. But it's just one more sign to them saying, understand, not only listen, but understand. Understand. And so... Um, it was, it was uh, uh, t- tongues, and I think from this passage has this idea of uh, a devastating event will come about. That's why it's for unbelievers. That's why unbelievers are, are saying, how is, what's going on here? Um, I could benefit, obviously, Paul was able to, to speak, if he was able to speak in foreign tongues, which he says, I am able to speak in it more than you all. That would have been very convenient for a guy who is going around and, and visiting foreign lands, foreign lands. Although there were times where Paul uh, was in foreign lands and didn't necessarily understand what they were saying. Like those who were speaking in the Lyconian language, thinking that he was a god. And he eventually had to rip his shirt open when he understood and said, no, we're only men. So when you're thinking about Paul and his... His point here in this section, he's really talking about listening, understanding, and then responding rightly, verses 23 through 25, responding rightly. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So Paul illustrates with both tongues and prophecy here, a couple of scenarios. Tongues, he obviously being abused doesn't glorify God. It's either being abused because it's some sort of gibberish or it's being abused because it clearly does not have any kind of interpretation going on with it. Later in verse 27, look what Paul says. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be It should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and one must interpret. Remember, we saw earlier that tongues speaking in a foreign language with interpretation could edify. Just like prophecy, which is speaking forth the very word of God, can build up and edify. 
But prophecy alone edifies. Tongues without interpretation doesn't edify. It's some sort of self-edification. And so um, we have this idea in verse 23 through 25 that you should respond rightly. Um, If the entire church gathered together and an unbeliever walks in and hears people just all just speaking together in unintelligible language, language that they don't understand. The words here are used to describe the unbeliever, and I think it's probably the same person here. It's an ungifted man, it says in in the new NASB. Um, uh, It's the person who doesn't understand, the ununderstanding man. Um, So it could be, it could refer to believers that just don't understand the language being spoken, or it could refer to the unbelievers who wouldn't understand what's going on, and they don't believe. But what are they going to say? Verse 23, that you are mad. On the other hand, if prophecy was dominating the service, if those who were, remember, prophecy is not just telling the future. That's, uh, the, the, the word itself is forthtelling. It's speaking forth the very words of God. And so uh, it is a gift which helps communicate what God was communicating. In days being complete, it was essential for the church. How were they going to know what God was saying? And there were those who had the gift of prophecy. Today, the gift can be used by those who are speaking forth the word of God, not that they are prophets. The office of prophet no longer exists, but this gift of being able to declare and speak forth the word of God still exists today. And so we have this second scenario here where um, with, with response, and that's where people are speaking forth the word of God. The entire church is together. Verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among the brethren. So his response, why? Because he hears God's word. And we have this beautiful picture that, that I love in verse, at the end of verse 24 and, and into verse 25 of really what, what true worship looks like. And so I've decided to sneak another sermon in here all together, and, and, and this is kind of in closing, and then we'll take questions. But I'm calling this the five E's of true worship, the five E's, all right? We've got, we got alliteration today. Um, five descriptions or five E's. First of all, exposure. Take a look at verse 24. If all prophesy an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. That word convicted um, is, is, means to be exposed or reproved. Uh, one lexicon states one has done wrong with the implication that there is adequate proof of such wrongdoing, to rebuke, to reproach. And so uh, some versions actually translate this as he's convinced. But I think there's this idea of this guy is cut to the heart. He's rebuking himself. He is exposed. He is laid bare. He walks in and he hears that God is holy and that... And so, and, and because God is holy, any sinner cannot be in God's presence. And the person is hearing that taught, and he's hearing that proclaimed, and he is cut to the heart because he realizes, well, then how can I ever please God? How can I ever, if God will not tolerate sin, God will not be in the presence of sin, and I know I'm a sinner, I'm exposed. 
And he gets that not because he's heard some gibberish, but because he's heard the word of God being proclaimed. And so he's exposed. And that attitude, you cannot worship God unless you recognize your sin. And you recognize that it is exposed. And that you are like Isaiah, who in chapter 6 of Isaiah, verse 4, it says, At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. These are the angels who were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah cried, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord. So there's this idea of, of, I'm I'm exposed, I'm in trouble. That's part of worship, an attitude of, without, I need something. I, I have no hope. There's also examination. It says, he is called to account by all, verse 24. He is convicted by all. He is called to account. That word called in the original means to examine closely, to interrogate, especially judicially. So this guy's, the picture here is an unbeliever comes. He hears people uh, proclaiming the wonders of God. He's cut to the heart about his own sin. And he realizes, oh man, I have no hope. And now he starts to interrogate himself. You are a sinner against the Holy God. You have no hope of being in heaven. You have no right to go to heaven. What makes you think you should be in heaven when you have done what you've done? This is part of the heart of worship, interrogation, exposure, examination. And then there's a third element, and that is making evident, making evident, making it all evident It says in verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. That word disclosed means to be made evident, to to being evident so as to be readily known, to be visible, to be clear, plainly to be seen. It's open. So he sees himself as God sees him. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the church, that we come together together. And we are all repentant sinners. And everyone here knows that they don't deserve to be here. And it's evident to all. And if anyone were to ask us, we say, no, I have, I have no right. And this is one of the big misunderstandings about the church. Oh, the church are a bunch of hypocrites. They're all sinners. The difference between the church and the rest of the world is we are repentant. Repent all the difference in the world. I've examined myself and I say, there is no way forward for me except for to turn to Christ and rely on his righteousness. And I want it to be known to all that I stand here by grace and that there's nothing in and of myself. It is absolutely essential if you're going to worship Christ that you're not relying on your own self-righteousness. It's pharisaical. You have to be the righteous Christ who lived a perfect life and died as your substitute on the cross and you trust in his righteousness to make you acceptable before God. He died for you. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And there is this, I, this, this, this beautiful picture of somebody who comes and says, I am, it, it, I am making it evident to all. The secrets of my heart are disclosed. I have no secrets. And then there's this exaltation. Take a look at verse 25. And so he will fall on his face and worship God. This word worship has the idea of express an attitude 
and possibly by position, one's own allegiance to and regard for deity, to prostrate oneself in worship, to bow down and worship. So this guy falls on his face where he's standing and he worships. He exalts God. And the best way for him to exalt God is to make himself as low as possible. And I think this is, this is a big part of worship. I think this was a big problem for self-exaltation. In, uh, you know, I, 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 it, we, we, we think about, we think about uh, the, the tongues and how it was self-edifying. Last week I talked about if I read, came up here and read Scripture but didn't read it, just read it myself and did it in front of all and said, mm, this is great. You know, thank, thank you for joining me in Scripture reading this morning. It would, be, it would have no purpose for anybody other than for be edifying for me, and that would be selfish for me to take up your time and do that. Um, Sometimes uh, we get people ask questions, what about raising your hands in worship? You know, I don't think it's a problem to raise your hands in worship. I think it's biblical to raise your hands in worship. I, I know here at Grace Church, we don't do that. I think that when John Piper was here, he said he thinks it's a miracle that we can worship God the way we do without raising our hands. Um, <laughs> But um, I will say this. One of the reasons I think why uh, most people don't raise their hands here is because it is a place where you would be drawing attention to yourself if you did. And I think that that attitude, I think uh, most of us are so concerned about that want to draw um, I, I heard of one lady, uh, my wife was growing up, she told the lady at her church used to sit in the very front row in the very center and not only would raise her hands for everything, but would wear white gloves. And then she was able to somehow do some sort of, uh, I don't know if she was uh, from Hawaii or whatever, but like a hula, I don't know. It was, it was every, with every song, there were different hand motions that she would do. It was distracting. Um, but if you just take a look at this, he just lays himself so low in worship. He's not thinking about himself. He doesn't want others to see him. He wants to be exalting God to the greatest extent. And so he, he has a mindset that is low. And in this case, he has a posture that is low. And then finally, there's an expression at the end of verse 25. We have exposure, examination, evident, and exaltation, and expression declaring that God is certainly among you. There is something about this guy's worship that when unbelievers come in and they say, surely God is in this place. There is a declaration. There is an expression. The word declaring there is to give an account of something, to report, to announce, to tell. So worship is not something that, um, that we come to exalt ourselves. Worship is something where we come with an attitude where we're laid bare, we're open, and we are worshiping in gratitude, exalting the one who alone deserves to be exalted, drawing all attention to him and declaring what's going on. That's genuine worship. It's mindful worship. It's not separating your mind from what's going on. It's not a frenzy. That's spiritual immaturity. Mindful worship involves a closeness that listens, understands, and responds rightly, and that right response is with genuine worship. We got about five minutes left. Questions? Yes. So uh, on the day of Pentecost, um, yeah. um, with the, the flaming yes. tongues, did that ever accompany or in the biblical evidence that there was um, in the tongues 
Right. So the question is, in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where there are flames, visible flames coming down, uh, did that accompany, do we have any record of that any other time? We don't have an explicit mention of those visible flames coming down. We know that when it went to Samaria, it's reported it happened just, just like um, the, uh, um, let's see, let's, let's go ahead and just look at that quickly. It says, um, and there appeared, verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So on that occasion, there were tongues that were not only spoken, but there were visible tongues as if flames were coming down out of heaven and resting on each one of them. Um, later, um, the uh, Acts chapter 8, with Philip in Samaria, it says that uh, John and Peter went up, in verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. We actually don't have record that they spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 8. It's actually not mentioned. We assume that they spoke in tongues... But something happened, and it was at least visible. They didn't actually speak in tongues, but actually it was just the, the appearance of those flames again. Something was similar to the first account in Acts chapter 2. And we know that because Simon, uh, who was kind of this uh, 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 sorcerer guy who, who was fascinated with you know tricks, magic tricks, he um, wanted to come in and say what was going on there, and, and he, was, wanted, he wanted to pay money to be able to do that, whatever it was about. And then um, in, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter goes to Caesarea, um, it says in verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Peter says, raised him up. I'm just a man, he says. And then um, it says um, down in verse, where does it happen? Um, Oh, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So here we have Gentiles and the Jews are hearing them exalting. Maybe the Gentiles were speaking Hebrew. You know, the Jews were understanding it. I'm not sure. So... There was there, there. We have tongues being vis, uh, audibly heard. Yes, question. Okay, so you know in Revelation when John says these words of prophecy somehow written in different tongues, whatever. So is there a verse that means that same way when he says you do know tongues, or is there still? So that's a good question. So you're talking about in in um, Revelation uh, at the end of Revelation where it says do not add to this book or take away from it. So there is no more revelation that will be added uh, for the church. Um, what's interesting is that in the book of Revelation, it speaks about prophets who will be to tribulation, who prophecy in the tribulation period to the unbelievers of the tribulation era, and the church will be gone by that time. Um, so, so that 
that is a future prophecy that will take place. What's interesting about tongues is, going back to 1 Corinthians 13, 8, is that it says tongues will cease. And when we study that passage, um, it, it uses a middle verb, which means that they will cease all on their own. Whereas knowledge and prophecy, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, will be done away with. It uses a passive verb, which means something will happen to it to cause it to go away. That something is found in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 13, which is the perfect. All right. Yes. Yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay, so the question is, I, I opened up now uh, the second wave of blessing here at Grace Church by talking about uh, hand raising. What would be the appropriate way to do that if you wanted to do that? My advice: sit in the back. I, I'm kind of jesting, but I mean, obviously not drawing attention to yourself, right? Uh, so, um, I, I think that. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, just because the worship here, the person lays himself prostrate, it doesn't mean we should all go fall down in the worship center this afternoon or this morning, right, it's like during second service. Like, what is Steadfast doing, right? Um, and, and so I don't think there's a mandate that we have to raise hands every time we're, we're singing songs. I think that also you need to examine your heart. Why am I doing this? And what, what, what is my motive for doing it? Okay, last question. Yes. Oh, man, clapping. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just an issue of preference, and I think our society sometimes uses clapping in a wrong way, and I think people sometimes resist it because they don't want it to be about the person. I once, I once heard a musician play the most beautiful rendition of To God Be the Glory on a piano that I've ever heard, and afterwards he stood up and took a bow. And so I think, I think right? I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There's, we got to have some consistency here. And I think honoring one another, and I know we have our own little culture here. I like it. It's quirky. It's all about me. I, I, it's not about me. It's about God. But I love it. All right. We'll just scratch that last part off the tape. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this, for this passage, which is a great reminder that you alone deserve all the glory, that your name should be exalted. Father, help us to view ourselves properly before you. We thank you for your grace. We pray for those who might have heard this message today who do not know you, who realize that they've never really had their heart exposed to the sin that's there and confessed it and repented of it and turned and trusted in Christ and his righteousness, that they've been trusted in their own good works. I pray that this day they would fall to their knees and repent and turn to you for salvation, that they might worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.